Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, we're speaking with Mechel E.G. Nielsen. We talked via Zoom with him in Copenhagen, Denmark, and me in Chicago. We talked about his editing on the film Sound of Metal for director Darius Martyr. Meckel's accomplishments include multiple Danish film nominations for editing and back-to-back wins in 2004 and 2005. His filmography includes Beasts of No Nation, A Royal Affair, King's Game, and Madame Bovary. Meckel regularly jets back and forth between Copenhagen and either New York or L.A., to cut spots for rock, paper, scissors. It's a pleasure to meet you. Tell me a little bit about working for rock, paper, scissors and how your career has gone. Did you start in spots and move into features or the other way around or? Mm, no. No. I started editing news on the TV. Mm, me so too. So I would be the sound guy in the field and then I would edit it. The spot for the news station that I worked for. And then um, Denmark is such a small country, so you kind of have to go to film school in order to get to edit a feature film. The way to get into editing was that in high school, my class was in this uh, film by this Danish director, and I had some lines with all my friends, and I really looked forward to see the film. Then when we sat in that cinema, all my friends were there, but I was absolutely nowhere. So that was like the reveal of the edit. <laughs> like, okay, someone picks and choose. <laughs> and then I went to film school um, in Copenhagen, which was in 97. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I started on my first feature like the day after I finished film school. Wow. So I was lucky. I was just lucky to be asked. But you do a graduation film. So you work closely for four years at the Danish film school, only editing for four years, six students at the edit program. And there's the DPs and there's producers and directors. And those people work closely in in small groups. And you do one midterm film, which you do a lot of short films, which can only be shown internal. But then you do one graduation film that you can show out to the world. So you get an edit room and you get like a lot of other students that edit the same scenes or with the same material. You see with six different eyes and a teacher or a director coming in. That was super interesting. And then from then on, I went on doing feature films. But the thing is, in such a small country, you can't just, I mean, you could, but you have the possibility of working in all fields, which is like, Music videos, documentaries, commercials, feature films, TV shows. So it's fun to try uh, all the different things. But I wanted to do feature films at that time. So I was lucky enough to be able to work with a lot of different Danish directors and Swedish directors. Then I think in 2012, I was approached by Rob Fabesis's to work on commercials as well from the U.S. And I've been there ever since. Very nice. And you commute back and forth to do that. Yeah. I lived in New York in 12, and 
I have a place in New York, but my wife and kids went back because she was she's a mediator. So she had to go back and work. And then we found out that it actually worked out pretty well to commute back and forth. And it's almost like two weeks a month I would be in New York working or in LA. It depends on the job. So we have offices in LA and New York. Mm. I thought there was an office in Chicago at some point, but I might be wrong about that. Mm, I mean, we fall out of some of the edit places there. Got it. For sure. So we travel around. Let's talk about Sound of Metal. How did that project come about for you? So I was approached maybe like three weeks before they finished shooting. I know Darius had been looking for an editor for a very long time. The company producing the film is Caviar, and they mainly European working there, or at least the founder and the producer who produced this movie, Sasha, they are French or Belgian. So uh, I think they somehow probably put me on the list of potential people who could do this. I think Darius talked to a lot of different editors and I had a call with him. Um, we discussed how he likes to work because he used to be an editor himself. He's been doing uh, documentaries. He came from documentaries and he even worked as an editor on the film, which was, this film is based on a documentary by Derek Jan that Darius was working on about this band, Jucifer, who, where one of them loses his hearing and then they couldn't finish it. I don't know. I've never seen it. I just know that somehow Darius took over this baby many, many years ago and have been writing, trying to develop this film got obsessed with the whole idea that you have to go into the head of a character and hear it from or see and hear from this character's perspective. And then we just had this conversation how he thought it should be. And I was more like I told him how I wanted it to be because <laughs> it was a very personal project for him he spent so many years trying to raise this and it was very dear to him you could feel that immediately and i also saw rushes so i could feel that there's something really interesting in the material at least from my perspective and i just needed also to tell him how i would like to work if we go on this journey together and apparently it worked he told me i was the first one who told him how i wanted to do it and that's what he was looking for so I asked him to just give me all the material and not talk too much about it. And then I would start from scratch doing an assembly of my own and show him a first assembly. So it sounds like the film had already been shot when you came on or part of it had already been shot. Mm. Yeah, they were in Europe shooting the last part of the film. They shot it chronological. So they were, I think they had a couple of weeks shoot left or a week or so. Got it. Talk to me a little bit about sound design. Obviously, the sound design was so important to the film. Mm. How important was it for you to have some sense of the sound design while you were doing the picture cut? Nicholas, who's the sound designer, he had worked closely with Darius about like ideas about what it should sound like, or at least how it could potentially sound, or what it sounds like from an internal sound or so. But I was more interested in it from a story perspective. When do you go in and out? When does it become too tiring? How long can you stay in that world? So I got a lot of 
Atmos from Nicholas. And I try to limit myself to only work with eight audio tracks. So you would have like the dialogue in mono, and then you would have the atmosphere stereo to broaden it out. And then I would play around with filters and drones to see all like the tinnitus sound Mm -hmm. to just have the sense and feeling of when to go in or out of Ruben's head. Also together with uh, Nicholas, we would send him scenes and he would look at it. I mean, it's a very interesting collaboration because Darius was super open from the moment that he sent the material and saw everything. Even though he'd been working on the script for so long, it was like, if you can show me anything or let's just play around with the material. This is fun. This is a dream project for me. So let's go all the way, which is super interesting as an editor, just to be able to approach the material and at least say, maybe what if we do it like this and this and this, and what would happen if we try this? Or at least we know we've tried it and this is right or wrong for the project. And then to your point about sound design as well, from the moment Ruben gets his cochlear implants, Nicholas had given me a program called IR Cam, I think, which is like some sort of equalizer program that you run everything through. So I would export the whole act. I would export the whole ending and run it through this program and that would filter it so it sounded like this digital noise. And I would see everything with that and then I could go in and out and see when do we want to be inside of his head and when do we want to be outside? How long can you actually stay in that insane digital sound. Mm -hmm. And there's other places before you get to that point in the movie where you're also trying to decide, are you in his head or not in his head? So much of it's from his perspective though, correct? Yeah. yeah, Talk to me a little bit about that. What I'd actually be really interested in hearing is what you said to the director you wanted it to be like (laughs) in your interview, because that sounds like a very dangerous thing to do with a project that no. a director is so passionate about. I didn't say anything to him mm. to that point because he mentioned all these things that he wanted to achieve. And to be honest, I felt that if we can achieve like 60 or 70% of this, that would be amazing. But I would doubt it because he, it's a lot to ask for. Also as a deputant, as a first-time director, he was challenging the story, everyone uh, like to the extreme which I like. I mean, I find that attractive also for that journey too. I'm willing to go all the way in that sense with him. So he wanted it to be closed captioned. He wanted it to be an experience where a deaf person for the first time would be able to see this film and we as hearing people would be excluded and see it as deaf people would normally see a normal film. So he wanted it to be closed captioned. That was from the start and we had to work with that also how to put it. And then he wanted it to go into this internal sound. He didn't want us to subtitle all the sign language. I mean, these were also a dialogue between Darius and I, of course, but we felt that if you go on a journey with your main character, you can never know more than your main character. We have to know as little as he has. And if we enter a deaf community, we have to see the world just the way he sees it. So we are just completely not sure what's going on up to the point in the midway of the film it's like literally a one hour where he's on a slide with a boy mm-hmm. and, and suddenly you awaken the senses in Ruben again. 
And then there's like a, a little montage after that, right? Well, there's a small montage that feels like something changes with Ruben in that scene. And, Lots of and wind time, noise. And yeah, time is passing. And the next time you see him, everything is subtitled and he speaks sign language. You have already seen him like try and open up to this community. And from then on, he is ahead of you all the way. He suddenly has a project. He has this whole thing about starting to sell things from his airstream. And you're like, what, what's going on? What, what is this guy doing? What is it? Oh, it's the cochleus. He's still on this journey. Um, so that's like the midpoint, literally like one hour point in the movie. That slide. We, we felt that that's how it has to be. It has to be earned, that moment. Mm, it has to be earned, exactly. It has to be earned and it has to feel real that you stay with Ruben in that community. Because we played a lot around with the montages and every time it felt like it doesn't just feel right. There's something wrong. We can't suddenly go into a normal montage where you would put music or anything or the drumming or the piano scene. We played a lot with that. There's a piano scene where you see the kids hanging on. We played a lot for a very long amount of time with that scene to open up from that slide. After the slide, that piano would open up into a long montage. And it felt really nice in the moment watching a montage. But every time it just felt it's not real. You don't feel time passing because we would never tell this story this way. Yeah, so that was the idea about that. I was struck by the moments that you chose to go in and out of, as you said, go in and out of his head. And mm -hmm. I'm just going to preface this by saying that when I say this, I'm not criticizing it in any way. I'm interested in having a dialogue with mm -hmm. you, of course. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I loved the movie and I thought the editing was sensational. One of the places that I thought was really interesting where you chose, and it seems like it's such a small thing, where you chose to not be in his head, but it's completely personal. There's a scene where he's brushing his teeth, you know, mm -hmm. and we hear that and the audience hears it in a normal manner. It sounds like he's brushing his teeth, but that could be completely internal to him. This moment yeah. where he's not speaking, he's not doing anything. Yeah. Or no. there's another moment where, I'm not going to give away what happens, but his girlfriend gets in a cab. And after she leaves, again, we're not in his head in a place where we're completely with him. You're actually hearing normal sound. So I'm really interested in hearing how you made those decisions of when to be in and out of his head. Yeah, I mean, it is very important that, the, first of all, that how to get into his head. It's all about awaking the senses. And it's a very undertold story. Normally, you would definitely start by telling the issues or a lot of things you have to figure out yourself in this mm -hmm. film. And it wasn't until the moment when we figured out that first act, those first 10 minutes, those were difficult because it had to, first of all, be about this couple that are equal on stage, but also have a love relationship. So you have to understand the relationship between them. But that was very late in the process that the concert became the start because that concert, the first image of him sitting there and sitting in the end, it made a hole and it made sense because we wanted to create a world where you awaken your senses, you don't know what's going on. And for some people that kind of music is horrifying or, or way too aggressive or way too so it kind of gets you on your edge of your seat or at least it awakens something 
Then you go into this very silent opening of an airstream, him sleeping, and then you see him doing a smoothie, which is a loud noise, and then you see him with air dust uh, cleaning, and then he puts on a record. So you're just awaking the senses by hearing those loud noises and quiet noises, but also visually with your eyes. You have to look at the details in these things. And then when we got to that point where he says sound check, his last word before he loses his hearing is sound check. And then you go into this world of him losing. You feel you go with him. It's a tonight of sound, there's a small tonight of sound, and there's this uh, drone, which we work a lot with. And obviously, sound people have done amazingly afterwards. But it's still the same. The feeling, it could just be muted anyhow. Then you would still feel that something is happening, and you react the same way with your character. And then it's about how long can you stay in that world, and when do you want to go in or out of that world with your character? Because there's also some things that we need to understand. And we need to understand how big of a loss this is by showing the scene in the pharmacy, extremely muffled. Then there's two, maybe two or three places where we jump out and you just hear the words from that normal sound and you see that desperation from your main character, Ruben. And it's like a horror movie. If I experienced that myself, it would be like completely terrifying. And then, of course, you play around with that internal, external sound and you make him also make him stupid by saying you have to be cautious. You have to prevent the kind of little bit you're still hearing and then you go to the drum kit. Then you know what kind of person it is. He is already like the first moment you see him, it says, please kill me on his chest. You kind of know what this is crash and burn. This is like a character that just lives. Everything is just a lot with this character. There was a lot of extra scenes where we could dial up. Do we have to play more about what kind of band are they? How successful are they? How much do we have to go into the fact that he can't hear? Does Lou know that he can't hear? All these things. And little by little, you peel these things off and you find your character by saying, we have to stay with him. It's all about if we stay with Ruben and if we feel Ruben all the time, I at least felt we're home safe in the sense that we have developed a language where we, I as an audience, follow this guy through maybe something strange happens that I can't hear or see or anything, but at least I know that it's taking me through this journey somehow. That was at least the plan. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely felt that. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Meckel E.G. Nielsen. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my conversation with Meckel E.G. Nielsen. You mentioned that you didn't want to explain things like 
when he first goes to this house where he's learning uh, sign language, they're doing sign language and they don't explain what they're saying because Ruben doesn't understand it. Right. So the audience is right there with them. You're like, you're frustrated because you don't know what's going on and you're frustrated for him. Yeah. I thought it was, was lovely. There is, and I, we had a screening at Toronto, and that was the first time with a huge audience. And there were so many deaf people watching the film, and it was amazing for us because suddenly they started laughing, and all of it, the rest of us were like, what's going on? What? <laughs> what? There's so many small elements for that, which was something that he really wanted it to be. So that was a beautiful moment. Yeah, there's a big deaf school just yeah. uh, south of yeah. Toronto in Rochester. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they all came up. It was super interesting. It was super interesting. I'm really intrigued by what you were saying about kind of peeling the scenes back. Can you describe any of how the film started in the first place, that it got to the point where you're starting with him sitting at that drum set? You mean how we worked? Yeah, that... how did, what did the film start as when you did your editor's cut? Where did the film start? The way I work is that I screen footage for the first two or three weeks, just screen footage and select and mark it and put it after each other like a a system. Then after a couple of weeks or two or three weeks, you kind of find the materials rhythm and the characters rhythm. You understand how does the DP breathe with the director and these actors or non-actors or whatever it is. You kind of find every film has its own rhythm. And then it's easy suddenly to do the first pass, which was maybe my first pass was maybe like three hours and 45 minutes. And I probably put that together in two weeks from selecting all the scenes. And then I would show it to Darius. The opening scene was actually after the concert. That's like the airstream. You follow it, the airstream guy wakes up. And then there would be a lot about technical stuff. Like he would wake up, Lou, she would talk about music. He would say, I have this idea for music. To kind of understand what is this relation. But it was difficult to find are they equal? What level are they on? It's all about status in these scenes when we work with characters to try and find the status. And he also became like, is he, what kind of person is he? Is he unpleasant? Is he nice? We had a scene with a leaf blower out in the front that would somehow irritate him and he would go out very aggressively and shout at the guy with the leaf blower, which reads right and it looks right and sounds right, but it's about awakening these senses in the sense that the moment we moved that concert up in the start, you immediately know afterwards when you see the two of them, they're equal. She was the main, she was the singer, he was the drummer, they're the band, they're unit. And the way he wakes up, makes a smoothie, he wakes her up very pleasantly, very nice. Then they start dancing. Then they just go on tour and do the montage of where you have like slices of life, dialogue, until you get to a concert and then suddenly he just loses his hearing, which was very appealing suddenly because it was doing all the right things up to that point where you suddenly, you know, Ruben, it's not so much about, is he this or this or this? It's about who are they as people. And you also liked Lou a lot. Yeah. They're definitely both likable. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong though, before he loses his hearing in the concert, There are moments where he panics because something happens. He's like trying to clear his ears or he feels like he's underwater or there's fluid in his ears. You you go on tour with them and then in the airstream and you have fun 
small dialogues. And then they are putting up the merchandise with another band and they talk about t-shirts and records and stuff like that. And then he says that sound check and that's where he loses his hearing. And you have a concert as well where it's, I mean, it's a different language, but it works. It wouldn't be the normal shot that you would use as an internal sound with Ruben, but it works in the sense that you understand that he's still trying to do his concert, but everything is strange for him. And then he wakes up in the airstream and everything is muffled. Mm, he's like, mm-hmm. nah, nah, nah. and standing in the shower, you can't hear the drops. And he's also in front of a mirror going to the pharmacy just going to the doctor it's just like a natural how would you actually do this it's not so much about going back and forth it's a problem and problems we solve or at least we try and solve and then we go to a concert right he's a he's a fixer he's trying to fix it yeah that's what he always always telling lou i'll get the i'll yeah. fix it i'll solve it yeah i'll fix it i'll fix it no yeah. one no worries we'll fix it i can play but I know what we're doing. Now you know that I can hear, which was why it was so strange. So now we can just play. I mean, and then we'll make the money and get those cochleas. There are a couple of places where I really like there's little moments, especially around when he's learning sign language with the kids, that there are yeah. just little scenes, little moments of time. How much other stuff was there? You said your first assembly was three hours plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your guiding principle in choosing what to keep and what to eliminate yeah. with some scenes or plot? There was a lot of really, really nice uh, material with um, at the deaf community, for sure. But somehow it felt like we had to stay with Ruben's journey all the way. It makes sense to introduce characters, but but it shouldn't be that the teacher and him fall in love. It would be a different story. Even though there's small hints or small things, it's like a lot of people would think that, hey, here's the new girl, and why are they not? She's very nice, so, and they're super nice together. But it's not that kind of film. And it's also, there was a lot of what I would call um, mechanical plots, which is like I have 400 and now I spend 200. And then you sit as an audience thinking, wait a second, how, how much money does he have back? Is that 75 bucks? <laughs> instead of uh, how did that happen how did he suddenly get 90 bucks in his pocket uh, that's a mechanical plot for me and those things you don't really need to think about and also it was very important that that Ruben is a likable character he enters a world and they mm-hmm. open up and they invite him in so it was all about the journey for this guy and less is more sometimes you don't really need all these huge things when we found out that the, the, that the way Joe works, uh, the, the guy at the community, and those uh, dialogue scenes between the two of them, it was so refreshing. And also then suddenly to get into a dinner scene or where they would all sit around and you see that they're all addicts and or see the way they work on a board uh, giving assignments to everyone and having fun, even though it's really slow in a sense, but it's also trying to move forward it's always going on the emotion hopefully at least that's what we tried or i tried with various and then you we have these small tricks to go in and out of his world which can, can sometimes be very emotional like when he invites that kid out 
because you understand why if you can't hear anything why would you just sit still and be uh, for me that would be difficult just sit and watch something if i can only feel the rumble or something so he he knows he invites this kid out and then suddenly he finds that world again of drumming the vibration which is just uh, yeah it's just uh, it opens up a world for him and from then on he's he's a part of that whole community and with the kids he sees it and they see him and they play around and and then you can stay in those emotions or feelings but you can also just move forward all the time and say bring back Lou because if she was such a big part of him why wouldn't he check the emails but you could also argue why would there be a scene where, where Joe would be like I saw that you have been in my room entering the computer but it's not that kind of film it's a journey with this character that you are feeling emotional about or you can even sometimes if you if you've had issues yourself or at least sometimes felt that you try to deal with your own issues it can be difficult to sit alone especially in these times it can be difficult to suddenly if you're used to be traveling all the time to be stuck in your house <laughs> and not being able to go out and eat with your friends so one of the shots that i loved was when he's told to go into this room to write his feelings, he opens up this door to what is just a very simple, small room with a table and a chair. And the look on his face is as if it's a horror film and there's a ghost or a monster in there. Spectacular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Ruben's problem is he can't sit still. And you saw it from the moment, from the opening. He cannot... When he's doing smoothie, he has to do push-ups. When he's doing, it, it's all the time he has to something, right? Which is, uh, so Joe is just like, you just sit and you try and write what you think about. And, and, and can I paint? Can I do No, you can't. Can I draw? Can I? No, you just sit still and you write whatever. And I do the same. I mean, I try to find that inner peace. I, I like that scene a lot. I gave that scene to uh, the students at the film school. And it's fun to see how, how much you can play around with. I mean, it's just interesting to see how uh, different eyes look at different uh, at the same material. And it's so much fun uh, to give that kind of material from like Ruben in that room. From he enters the donut, sees the donut and enters that room and he's smashing the donut or he's not smashing the donut or he's... It's all about who you also are as a person, how you put these things together with the pauses and stuff like that. Uh, that's very rewarding to see other people do the same and talk about it, what it does with the eyes. Yeah, I'd done a film class once where we got 20 or 30 good editors, you know, experienced editors, and we all cut the exact same scene. They had the same material. And you go off and to see multiple people cut the same scene is really revealing and interesting. It's so interesting why something works in one version and it doesn't work. Or someone starts on the right image and suddenly it's a completely different scene. Or status in, in, in a dialogue scene. If you just take out one word or you move one word, up from the front and to the end and suddenly everything completely changes and you see the characters with completely different eyes it's really interesting what it can do i would call it a fun challenge because there is shot dialogue scenes where one is deaf and doesn't know to speak a sign language or to uh, do sign language understand sign language and the other one joe is uh, trying to read lips 
has a computer. So it's like uh, that first thing they have, it's like uh, you have three characters. You have a monitor that has to write what he's trying to say. And then the other guy has to, so you don't, so you can always see his lips. And to understand uh, that every time he looks to the left, he's actually just reading that. And it has to feel right. You would normally, you would cut a lot to that person or that character where you would see, but that would take like ages if he had to read all these lines every time someone said it. The next challenge would be, so do we actually have to stay out in these shots? Can we go into uh, close-ups? Because what about, do we need to see the sign language all the time? How does that work? So super interesting to edit these scenes. It was a fun fun, fun challenge, or at least to make them smooth. And then in the end, you can start with the character work. Uh, when do they do what and how How does it change suddenly? And when do you understand the things like addiction? Suddenly we bring in addiction, which is like 50 minutes into the film. Maybe you felt it, but you've never talked about it. So it, it, it suddenly becomes about something completely different. I thought it was about losing your hearing, but no, now it's about addiction. Because the film is so deeply in Ruben's perspective, the times that you choose to come out of his perspective are important. And one of the places I thought of was in an early diner scene with uh, Lou and, and Ruben. You've been pretty much in his head how frustrated he is that he can't hear. But then there's a moment where you cut to her looking at him very concerned. I mean, it, it's all about how you feel it when you watch it. Does it work? If it works, it works, right? And if it doesn't work, we have to fix it somehow. But it's also about we have to remember me and you and everyone else as an audience that even though he's talking, 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 he is still not listening. He he can't hear what's going on. And we have to we have to remember ourselves these small things, at least up up in the start, in that point before he moves into the, the deaf community. Uh, after they have at, at Joe's house, they are in the airstream uh, at night and he's like, we'll just uh, get them on. Let's go back on tour and we can do this. And, you know, and you can just see her emotions of like, <laughs> what is going on with this guy? Uh, and he's like, I'll fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. And then he's hugging her, giving her a kiss. And you go on the side shot and you suddenly reveal that drone or at least that anxiety, which is within him. And you remember this is what's going on with Ruben. You cut directly to him just crashing the whole thing. And she wakes up. It's like, what on earth is going on with this guy? He's losing it. And then suddenly she's leaving. And, and there's so many small things that you're not really told what's going on. But emotionally, it feels earned and right because Ruben has absolutely no idea who's calling her, why she's leaving. Why, suddenly there's a taxi. He's like, you can stay, we'll fix it. You know I'll do this, this, this. Suddenly she's just gone. And that's where you like, that's where he takes things in. And you stay on a wide shot for a very long time. You hear out in the distance, small train, which is like real life out there. But now we are just entering this world that we just saw a small slice of, a slice of with, with Ruben. Switching back and forth between cutting feature films and cutting spots, is it a different muscle? Are you exercising different skills or do you feel like you're always exercising the same skill? 
no, it's the same scale, but I would say that it's probably the opposite of directors because sometimes I go to commercials or music videos or stuff like that uh, to stay sane. You could call it method editing somehow because it's it's all about you go so deep into the world of your main character with him. And personally, I could go on a silent retreat just to try and feel how does it feel to not listen for a long time. To really understand, I connected with this character because I am a drummer myself. I've been drumming uh, all my life. Uh, I've always had a drum kit in my edit room. I could completely understand losing a sense. That would be terrible. Uh, I would absolutely hate it, losing my sense, uh, losing my hearing sense. And and then you ask yourself, what would you rather lose, the eyes or the ears? Uh, and I, I would be like, I have no idea. I don't want to lose any of them. But probably I would lose the, the eyes before the ears in a sense. At least then I would still have uh, music and sounds and dialogue and, and all these things. It would be easier to navigate probably with only your, your hearing. Did you mention to the director that you were a drummer when you had your interview? Yeah. I mean, I told him I connected with the material and he was like, that's amazing. That's good. I also grew up in the commune and my father is a musician. And he's a very, uh, he's been a musician for 50 years. Uh, a lot of my family is, and he's also he- losing his hearing. My dad too. My, my dad is a musician who is losing his hearing right now, yeah. That's the thing, because for me, it wasn't about the addiction, but then it was about the hearing. And then you add, uh, my addiction would then be that I work way too much. I like to work. <laughs> so then you have to choose between, uh, okay, then maybe not go out so much or less sport, but then family and work. I, I don't know. I, you asked about those uh, spots and feature films i think that it's very important that we challenge ourselves all the time and doing spots and meeting uh, new directors i mean it's a long time to sit in an edit room for six nine months right i absolutely love it but it's also the journey with that with those people you are in the room with it's super interesting to get to meet and to understand what a director dreams about and wants to do right it's just like uh, they put their little baby in your hands and then you try to mold it and you try to find and then suddenly you have to protect it from them because they get tired and they get <laughs> it's like ah oh, maybe we should take out that scene you're like mm, yeah let's try that but maybe let's do it a little later or at least hear that people want it out or something i just find it interesting to go back and forth and do projects also sometimes of three weeks four weeks for a spot and also you get to try and work with the multiple dps or you can try music or sound or all these things and and amazing directors as well. So for me, it's a super challenge. Is it different to cut when a film's been primarily shot? You've cut a bunch of films. Obviously, a lot of times you're getting the material where you have to work with it out of context. You're working with scene 42 is the first scene you're cutting maybe, and then scene 12. And this time you could cut in order, correct? I did, yeah. I would um, screen footage uh, and do the selects, but then sometimes it gets a little boring to stay in that world and then you go to something else because just screening and screening and screening, getting into that material is sometimes uh, tiring, of course, as well. And I don't really see it. it. It's mechanical. You put together a scene and edit, you feel how they shoot it, the dialogue, but a dialogue scene is a dialogue scene, so it's about it, you try to put it together as fast as from from my perspective, and then find the characters and find the story. Because 
for me, it's interesting to put everything together fast and see what is it we have. And from then on, you start playing with the things. I can easily start already taking out things that I don't like or think that could work potentially in a better way. But I think it would be wrong to, to do that. Or at least I would probably do it on the side and have it as a backup because Sometimes something interesting happens when you put together a first assembly just out of your instincts. And sometimes I put things together wrong compared to what the vision was from a director. But wrong doesn't mean that it's not right in the sense that it might be the way way it ends up. You talk to so many different editors and, and you know that sometimes when you then polish everything and it gets smooth and nice and nice and nice and then you're almost done with the final cut, then you go back and you see the first assembly and it's suddenly like, wait a second, now it's amazing. That small moment, what if we just put this in here? Or sometimes it's the first assembly that's still in the final movie because you just hit a certain thing at that moment when you that uh, instant moment when the material meets your eyes and ears and you work with music or sound or, or atmos or whatever it is it, it's just something magical sometimes can happen talk to me about fighting yourself in that oh i already cut this you know i cut it this way and realizing you have to start over There's no right or wrong in the edit room. I mean, any stupid idea is allowed. At least it should be allowed and it should be a safe area. It should be a safe area for the director, for me, for the producer, for the actor, for anyone to say, what if we did it like this? And they would say, it's terrible. Look, it's completely wrong. Yes, but at least we know. Then we know that this, I'm not saying that you should just do anything for the purpose of doing it. It's to try to achieve something, of course. And I would think... Uh, with this film, for example, it was just this feeling that we are connecting with our characters. And then you open up that very sweet, tender guy who's with a drumstick in her ear on her arm. And you see small things like she has cut her arm and that connects to something down in the last act where she suddenly started to scratch it again. And you feel this is part of Ruben and Lou. It, suddenly when she left him, she's had a much better thing. It was it was good for her, which is why they leave each other. But it's also something they protected each other and loved each other. So it's just a beautiful love relationship. Well, I, and I love starting on him drumming because it's your sole way of knowing who he is. And then when he loses his hearing, you know that you're losing the thing that defines him. And if you started out with him as a person, oh, he's in love and well, he's always got his girlfriend, you know, so he, he can't be a drummer. He's got his girlfriend. He's got this. No, 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 no. You're starting out by saying his life is sitting at this drum set. And if he can't hear, yeah, I, I love the starting in that way. I could see that. But also, it's an interesting scene to start with because the way Darius and the DP uh, wanted to shoot the scene was without uh, cutaways. So there's no way if Riz wouldn't play the actual drums or if Lou or Olivia didn't play the guitar or sing, they would fail. You You would see it instantly. These are the people. They've been practicing drums, guitar, singing. And it's the it's the take itself. There's no cutaways. There's no like an actual drummer sitting in. He he had to learn to play drums to play that scene. Otherwise, he's not Ruben. He had to learn sign language to play that role. 
that's what Darius was asking for from his actor. Therefore, as an editor, you feel, of course, I would go like a ton of extra miles for him because he's already asked so many people to do this. He's already spent almost 10 years of his own life to try and do this film. Then why wouldn't I go that extra mile, at least to try and turn those small stones and see what if, what would happen if we did this and this and this. And a, and a remote editing workflow, it sounds like, with you being separate from him. You being separate from the assistant and the director, right? Well, uh, Darius would say a lot in Copenhagen. And then we had screenings in New York and L.A., and I would go there for the screenings, of course. But also, we had the, the possibility to re-edit the film after um, uh, they did the final mix, because they, they did sound for so long. And it opened our eyes to to be a little more precise, especially at the deaf community, that part. For a very long time, we had like montages, as I told you about going from when he, uh, on that slide, going into when he understands sign language. And then at a point after, uh, actually after the Toronto screening, we, we had the possibility of taking out maybe 10, 15 minutes of the film. Did you? Yeah, I mean, that's a gift. Who, who gets to, to re-edit things and see it with fresh eyes and you've seen how some people react and some people... And it's just about being as precise as possible in what you're trying to achieve or tell. And it would also be to be honest to the material and to the characters and to the story and Darius. Uh, that way it's been a fantastic project to work on. Now there's music, come on. There's two pieces of music in the film. And why do you think that is? What was the decision-making behind that? I mean, there's the concert up in the start, and then there's a piano piece in the end, but then there's also a piano piece in the middle. But those are like earned pieces, music pieces, because they're in, in the scenes. I mean, we work with emotions, drone emotions, or not drones, because that would be insulting the sound guys, because they've been working so much, and, and the composers as well, Abraham and, and Nicholas. But it's not music in the sense of a score. It's more in the sense of a personal journey. And that was a key to finding the film because we were struggling a lot from that diner scene when they're going to Joe's place for the first time. Should that be a music piece? They're moving from one state to another state. It's day and night and you have like a montage of things. But it's the first time you have a montage of inner emotions, how, how he's hearing the RV driving, the atmosphere outside at night, these things. So you traveled with him through that whole emotional journey up to that point and that's how we kind of envisioned or wanted to play with music as an emotional journey or emotional piece it's the same as a, a small piece that you don't really recognize would do or a drone or something that opens up or, or, or goes down it's not like specific uh, score music but it's more like emotions i was going to ask you about that montage of traveling to the deaf community because she says hey hector has found this place where you can go we're going to go there let's go what was the value of the quote-unquote shoe leather what was the value of the travel time especially with no real music underneath there I mean, first of all, you don't really know where they're going. 
so you at least you needed to take those words in and move yourself because you're trying to figure out what is it about. You don't know that it's a sponsor who's trying. You you know this retrospective when you find out that he has an addiction, that that call must have been from a sponsor who's helping him and trying to find a place where he can go into this group again, but now for deaf people, right? But those are not things that you know at that certain point. So for you, it's more like, he found a place and Ruben is like uh, found a place what it'll take a couple of days that's what she says on the phone for us to get there so for us to go there and she already told us it's going to take us a couple of days if you just cut to the scene where it says deaf children playing it wouldn't be earned you wouldn't have that feeling that this is Ruben's journey so therefore it has to be Ruben's journey these places he doesn't know what he's going to he doesn't know what's happening but when you entered, he's like, is that him? What's this about? What's going on? Are you coming, Lou? He doesn't know what he's going into, but he finds out, right? With us, we don't know what we're going into. We don't know who the guy is, what it's all about. It's an internal montage to move him from one place to the other. And we tried it with music. We tried it without music. We tried to cut it out, all these things. This was the only way it completely suddenly felt that this is right. Well, thank you very much for talking to us about this. It's a really beautiful film, very emotional, and uh, thank you for cutting it. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Meckel E.G. Nielsen. Also, thanks to Dylan Giovanetto and Jake Gum, who co-edited this episode using Adobe Audition. And to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering. If this is a podcast you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.